What a beautiful, beautiful spring night to be live with you on the Logic and Larry podcast. I'm your host, Larry Luciato Crane. Everything I say on this podcast is strictly for entertainment purposes. It does not reflect the official stance of any entity. It does not reflect the official stance of any other person. It's strictly me speaking to you as a private citizen And it's a great time to be a private citizen and just alive. Right now, for me, a lot of good things going on. I'm relaxing, about to set off another weekend. The weather's beautiful. Things are opening up as we keep discussing every week. We are through the long, dark tunnel, and we embark upon a brighter future, hopefully. It's a pleasure to be with you and and everybody. You know, it's kind of interesting to be here and to just talk and vent, you know, last few days. And it's really been since the beginning of everything. I get a lot of private messages from people and usually they're sending me some kind of, you know, conspiracy or some kind of information about whether it's the vaccine, whether it's COVID something. And I kind of, sometimes I get frustrated and I react like, you know, why are you bringing me this? This is nonsense. It's bullshit, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized, I mean, I talked to two people over the last two days in depth about these things. I realized, you know, people just bring it to me because they want to engage me and they want to get my opinion and kind of go back and forth and learn something. And it's kind of a, a dope thing that people reach out to me in that way. So, you know, it, it's good to be in that position, but it's really good to be on the podcast because here's where I sit and kind of get it all out, kind of talk about everything, all sides of everything in the complex ways that the world exists because it's not anything simple. It's never straightforward and it's never one sided. Now, there's a lot of news this week, just like there was a lot of news last week. There's some interesting things I want to delve into. Uh, and trust me, all sides of the spectrum will be getting addressed tonight as usual because the theme of tonight. What I want to talk about tonight is, you know, how do you see yourself as a human being, right? Forget about what your stance is on something. Forget about what team you represent. Forget about what ideological position you've chosen to defend. Who do you want to be as a human being? Because in human beings in this world that has plenty of despair and suffering in our own human lives as well as in nature and the universe itself, we have a choice. We can continue to pretend as if we need to pick a chosen side or position within this fabricated societal framework that we've developed amongst ourselves. Or we can try to transcend that and try to be better people regardless of the confines of those designations. And that's kind of the theme for tonight, if you will. Now, it's a beautiful spring day. I just got done watching the Rutgers spring game. They got another commit. I'm very excited as a Jerseyan, as a Rutgers fan. It was just nice to see. Nice to see people in the stands, although Rutgers isn't opening at the same pace as New Jersey, and New Jersey's not quite at the same pace as the rest of the country, but we're getting there. And it's just nice to see people in the stands. I can't wait to be one of them soon. If you saw the CDC came out saying that vaccinated people don't need to wear masks indoors or outdoors anymore. Of course, several people, including small business owners, immediately were like, well, how the hell are we going to police that? 
And normal people were still like, you know, how are we going to police that? How do you know if I have a vaccine or not? It's going to cause a headache. So Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, came out and said, look, outdoors, if you're vaccinated, you don't need a mask. But indoors, we're leaving the mandate because it's too much to sort through. You know, if there's one thing somebody said to me yesterday, well, Fauci, you know, he's got to be part of the you know, the conspiracy or part of the under whatever you want to call it. So if he was, he'd have more consistent messaging, wouldn't he? He'd have a set lying message to portray, and he really hasn't had that. He keeps going back and forth as the facts and science come in. And let's face it, they've been a little confused from the beginning, but they're doing their best to keep us safe. They're doing their best to prevent the spread. They're doing their best to get ahead of this virus. So you got to give them props on that. And you got to just, you know, hope and root for them that they continue to do so. So uh, we'll continue to do that. And, you know, hopefully, even though some of this stuff seems arbitrary at times, we got to just rock with it and we'll get through it. Um, so that's a good thing. So, look, number one this week on the news, just to get it out of the way, uh, there's an investigation going on with the New York Attorney General in conjunction with the New York City District Attorney, the Manhattan District Attorney. So Cyrus Vance is the Manhattan District Attorney. Uh, Letitia James is the New York Attorney General. News came out earlier this week that uh, Trump was, well, well. Uh, let's not jump the gun. Let's not mischaracterize it like the news does, right? So Trump and the Trump Organization essentially got a letter saying that the investigation into their finances that was being conducted by the New York Attorney General and by the uh, Manhattan District Attorney was going beyond the scope of simple civil penalties in a civil investigation and was now going into potentially a criminal investigation. Now, Donald Trump himself is not implicated yet. The Trump organization itself is not implicated in any criminal activity. None of that has happened. Uh, what, what did kind of happen, which was the big news this week, was that Alan Weisselberg, Alan Weisselberg, who was... Um, a, a mainstay in the Trump organization for many, many years, a mainstay, and was the CFO, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization for a very long time. And there's been story upon stories about how close he was with Trump and how he was almost his right-hand man financially. He's under investigation um, by the New York Attorney General for potential uh, financial crimes. And these crimes involve perhaps some transactions or business with his former daughter-in-law. So this is kind of interesting. The reason it's interesting is, is several months ago, several people who knew kind of how these investigations go did say that perhaps if Mr. Weisselberg was implicated in any criminal activity, that he was somebody who had such a, a long-standing relationship with Trump and with the Trump organization. And he was so intimately involved in the inner workings and the finances that perhaps if he were implicated in criminal activity and he were facing consequences, he may be somebody who would cooperate with federal or not federal in this case, but state authorities in order to shed light on other uh, cases of malfeasance or, or, you know, illegality that might be occurring within the Trump organization. It's just something to keep an eye on. Um, it was kind of always known that the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump was not going to go anywhere due to the partisan um, makeup of Congress. And that turned out to be true. 
while some people like Mitch McConnell spoke vehemently against the actions of the former president, they didn't he didn't go so far as to convict. So everybody knew that this New York, you know, investigation was going to be kind of the pinnacle of any criminal investigation. The, the fact is that if they don't find anything criminal on on the former president and if they don't initiate any type of actual formal prosecution of him, then it's very unlikely to happen. And if they do, then that's going to be probably the primary criminal prosecution that we're going to see on this issue. So it's just something to keep an eye on. It just continues to evolve. And again, you know, when you're a big businessman and you have that kind of organization, you never know what kind of things has been have been going on. One of the biggest issues I always had with former president was that he would never release his tax returns. You know, he vehemently fought against it so much that it made me think, like, what is he hiding? Is he hiding something just electorally or is he hiding something because of criminal, you know, behavior? Or is it just something he doesn't want the public to know because it wouldn't look good? We'll see. We'll we'll soon see. That's the news on that. But I want to move past that because I want to get into this central theme that I kind of brought up early on in the show, which was... What kind of person do you want to be? What divides us? Why are we divided in these ways? And I want to talk about there was news that came down just today about an Israeli-Palestinian ceasefire. And last week, even though I wasn't here live, I did go into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and kind of traced back some of the reasons for it. And, you know, I've been reading more and more and more about it. And Certainly this eviction and the settlements and the, the dispute over East Jerusalem are central to the conflict. But also, you know, when I go into those things, and I think the United States does need to take a heavier hand with Israel for sure. And the United States needs to be firmer with Israel and needs to call them out when they commit crimes against humanity and for some of their occupations and and pushing forward with certain settlements that are largely deemed by the international community to be illegal. I'm not saying when I sit here and talk about this issue, I'm not saying that this is a completely one-sided issue. And I I think I've seen over the past, you know, week or so, and this is going to go to the central theme of tonight, meaning, you know, why do we have to stay on these fabricated sides of things when we can transcend them and kind of just be all-encompassing common sense people. It's not that it's completely one-sided. Israel needs to take certain blame. And my biggest problem is that the United States seems to constantly be backing Israel even when they step out of line. And that's a problem because there's no accountability for one side of the conflict then. But don't get me wrong. This stems partly from, you know, rhetoric and, and activities from the other side too. This is a complicated situation and rockets have been being fired into Israel and Israel is, you know, doing what they normally do, which is retaliating. But just to draw, you know, while I'm not saying it's completely one-sided and while I am calling for uh, the United States to take a stronger stance on Israel, it should be noted that it's, it's great that there's a ceasefire first of all. Okay. And Egypt helped to broker that deal, and I'll get into that a little bit more in a few minutes. But if you really just want to delve into the issue and you want to see an illustration of kind of who it affects and why so many people are so vehemently rushing to the defense of Palestine and why so many people are so quick to condemn Israel 
you know, regardless of whatever political complexities may exist in the situation. Then you only need to really look at the casualties, because remember this too, right? When two political entities are fighting each other or coming to blows over something, there's always civilians caught up in the middle, right? Just regular people that are going to work, that are living their lives, just like when the United States is involved in a conflict overseas. We are not, as day-to-day people, always necessarily directly involved in that conflict. We don't always have a stake in it. And we are, we get very, very upset when civilians are caught in the crossfire. I mean, 9-11, for instance, there were a lot of socio-political undertones and complexities to that attack. But the fact that it attacked a civilian structure and killed so many civilians was what truly, truly, truly made it an act of terrorism and what truly got us to react the way we did and to remember it the way we do, which is rightfully so. But just so to draw some, to put numbers on this, to really bring out why people are coming to the defense of Palestine and condemning Israel. Let's look at the casualties just from this most recent conflict. Palestine. The Palestinians suffered 232 deaths. 232 Palestinian deaths just from this most recent conflict including 65 children. 232 deaths, including 65 children. On the Israeli side, there were 12 deaths, including two children. Okay, Any child's life lost, any civilian life lost is unacceptable. However, just look at the disparity. Look at that disparity. 232 with 65 children were the deaths for Palestine. 12 deaths with two children were the deaths for Israel. Like, that's why people are coming down on one side or the other. It's also because the United States has supported Israel for so long and so vehemently that people are wondering why it's so one side. Now, to that end, President Biden, and President Biden has had a long history and a a relationship with Israel and with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's an old line, which is part of the reason that progressives weren't so fond of him. Biden is an old line, kind of foreign policy hawk Democrat. But in keeping up with what I'm talking about, with do you have to stick to old lines or party lines or can you be a decent human being? I called out President Biden a few days ago when he initially said that he was urging a de-escalation, but reiterating that Israel had a right to defend itself. It didn't seem like he was doing a whole hell of a lot. This was just, I think yesterday or the day before I posted this article and I said, not enough quite yet, Joe. I'm not shy about criticizing anybody. And I was saying, look, It's one thing to say what you're saying, Biden, but you're not actually taking the stance that I urged last week that he took. And it was a problem. And it was like, oh, are you just sitting on the side of this military industrial uh, complex, which liberals have railed against for so long, as well as libertarians, by the way. But the news that came out today leading up to this ceasefire, thankfully, was that Biden had four phone calls with Netanyahu. Four separate phone calls with Netanyahu and that he got increasingly less patient with Netanyahu and that he started to say, you know, instead of reiterating his support, but asking for some understanding, he started to tell Netanyahu that he expected 
He expected a drawdown. He expected a decrease in violence. And that I applaud. Because that, when you have power, and the United States has power, a lot of power. When you have power, and when you have the type of power that the United States has, you should be using and wielding that power in order to save lives and do good. And I said, if you look at the casualties, again, 232 to 12, you look at the casualties, you look at the power imbalance, you see that it's imbalanced and it's in favor of Israel. And regardless of the complexity of the situation, you needed to have a drawdown. And the United States was in a unique position to be able to put pressure on Israel, which I said last week, to help draw it down. And Biden did step in and he did put a lot of pressure on Netanyahu to draw it down. We do now have a ceasefire. They're saying Friday is supposed to be the ceasefire tomorrow at 2 a.m. Israel's been a little more reluctant to actually put a time on it, but it looks like it's going to happen. Now, Egypt was big in brokering this deal. And it, it, it just shows that, okay, somebody was acting in the best interest of humanity. It doesn't get us any further on moving the needle with this conflict. Biden did say, you know, give a statement saying that Gaza was a, a principal component in resolving the issue because it, it was seen by Palestinians as a principal geographic portion of a Palestinian state down the road. Now, talking about conflict and why people are the way they are, the, the conflict is historically old, and I'll have to get into it on a, a separate occasion if I'm going to delve well deep into the historical reasons for why we find ourselves where we currently find ourselves. And and it may be in everybody's interest for them to keep fighting, but it's 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 getting resolved more now. So we'll see. Um and it's an interesting thing. It's a long history. It really is. And and it and it's almost never ending. But what I find so fascinating, when I was a kid, my father used to say, he used to go on these rants, he used to say sit there he never understood the northern ireland conflict you know with, with the irish you know he understood the political reasons but he would just make fun of it he's like you know they're all pasty white they all eat potatoes and by the way i'm part irish so i can say that all right i'm just joking just don't get you know you know why are they always what are they killing each other for he's like you know i live in this neighborhood i have white people black people jewish people christian people muslim people spanish people immigrants you know we have everything here and we get along just fine. We're all over for dinner. We barbecue together. We do everything together. You know, we have all these crazy differences, yet these people, you know, they're fighting over everything. That's what he used to say. Like, why are they fighting? You know, the Irish are fighting each other. And look, at they're, they're, they're so similar. In Israel, it's obviously different, and there's reasons for it. But eventually, you start to wonder, like, why? Why the fighting? And, and I recommend, with regard to that conflict, and again, delving into the humanity the complexities of human nature as they conflict with each other because they're told they have to. There's a film from 2010, and I, I think anybody should watch it. It was a documentary film from 2010, and it was called A Precious Life. Precious Life, a 2010 documentary. It's one of the most fascinating things as we discuss that human element, you know, human decency when you strip away party lines and you strip away national interests and things of that nature and you just delve into just pure pure humanity 
This film was so intriguing, Precious Life, 2010, because it followed essentially a Israeli Jewish palace uh, Jewish pediatrician who was treating a Palestinian child for a rare medical condition. And it showed the entire duration of this film was this Palestinian child and his mother going into Israel, crossing the checkpoints, and everything else they had to go through to get treatment from this Israeli Jewish doctor who was trying to save this young kid's life. And the so, as they go through it, the mother, the doctor and the kid you know, there's these tender moments where all three of them are pulling for the survival of this kid. Because they're all human beings and they have this personal relationship. Yet, on a given night, in this documentary, they show that the doctor also is a reserve military. Uh, military, has it involved in the military. And at one point, he has to go attack... Palestine and he has to shoot into Palestine into buildings and they show the people on the other side of these rockets who are dying and being injured by this doctor who's saving the life of the kid the next day and then the mother of the kid they're interviewing her and she's so thankful for the doctor and she's so thankful for the treatment she says on camera it would be an honor if my son, when he grows up, if he survives this, with the help of this doctor, if he survives this, it would be an honor to him and his people and to me personally, if he strapped a bomb to his chest and was a suicide bomber and bombed Israel. And it's so, it's, and, and when I say fascinating, I don't say fascinating in terms of a, a positive connotation. I say fascinating in terms of just an astounding, you know, crazy, for lack of a better term, human conundrum and paradox. We are constantly compelled in these age-old partisan, national, etc. conflicts to suppress our humanity and act on that basis, but then in another situation to suppress our allegiances to those things and to elevate our humanity. And at what point do we simply just start to elevate our humanity? I'm glad we had the ceasefire. I'm glad Biden decided to appeal to humanity and call out an ally. Because look, and when I, let's talk about this. So Bernie Sanders and a special shout to our listeners in Oregon. Because this was brought to my attention by somebody out there. Um, Bernie Sanders, he, he introduced a resolution to put a stop to a $735 million weapons sale to Israel this week. And that was partially in conjunction with members of the House. Uh, Congresswoman Tlaib, uh, AOC, they had called to put a stop to this arms sale. When you realize that Biden did what he did with Netanyahu, you realize that there are complexities at play here, right? This military-industrial complex. This military-industrial complex, it creates a, an environment where 
There's industries that rely upon these types of weapon sales to other countries in order to make money, in order to employ people, in order for stocks to go up, etc., etc. So there's complexities here. So Biden in a fight with Israel also puts financial interests at risk in the military industrial complex, which relies partially on these conflicts. But Bernie tried to hit him where, they, where it hurt. And Bernie said, I'm going to put a stop to the $735 million weapons sale. And it was interesting to see because it was primarily symbolic. Because interestingly, again, when you put business interests at play now, aside from humanity, aside from partisan interests, when you put business interests at play, money... Bob Menendez, who's a Democratic senator from New Jersey, and several Republican senators and several Republican congresspeople, several Democratic congresspeople, they knew that despite Bernie moving forward with this resolution, that regardless of Bernie's best efforts, that this sale was going to go through regardless. The Biden administration had approved this sale, and Congress was going to approve it regardless. And it's just interesting how they're plenty bipartisan when it comes to things like that. Now, it's not just money. Israel is a very important ally to the United States. It represents a serious foothold and interest in the Middle East, which is a controversial area, to say the least. So it's not just money, but it's just interesting. And when we're talking about Bernie, by the way, and the, uh, the, the squad in Congress, can I just bring up something else really quick? This week, you know, it's funny because literally in two separate comment threads on Facebook, in two separate things, literally back to back, though, within the same 15 minutes, two different left-leaning people said that Israel is an apartheid state. And it was interesting because it was literally one after the other. Like, it's an apartheid state. It's an apartheid state. And interestingly, AOC had said that recently. And I did some research, and that term had been around for a couple of years, 10 years, maybe trying to apply the South African term to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And certain aspects of the South African issue could be applicable to the Israeli conflict, but not really. And I kind of broke down to both these people like, look, the actual origin linguistically of the word apartheid actually is an Afrikaans. Afrikaans word from South Africa is actually exclusively applicable to South Africa. So just as an aside... I know Bernie's been on the same side of this issue forever. I know AOC's been on the same side of this issue forever. I know a lot of left-leaning people have been on the same side of this issue for a long time. I know that people have their positions, and that's fine. But you know something? When when a, a, a term or a phrase that people are trying to coin gets out and goes so far and becomes, like, parroted, it almost waters down the force that that term or that position might have. So seeing just... Every left-leaning person start quoting apartheid state, apartheid state, instead of just delving into the complexities of this particular issue for what it is uniquely onto itself, as opposed to drawing any kind of analogy with South Africa, which is really a much different conflict, it kind of waters it down and it kind of makes everybody look like they're just towing party lines again. It kind of kills the conversation kind of kills the depth of the situation so i just found that interesting you know we discuss these things and we get carried away and bogged down in this partisan talking points and these partisan things where you get into a place where you don't even care about defending your position anymore substantively you're just bogged down and bothering to defend the party's use of a phrase 
it takes so much away from the substance of the conversation. It takes so much away from the chance to actually reach common ground. And let me tell you something. Before, when I mentioned people private messaging me about things with the vaccine or with COVID, I have found common ground and have had very productive conversations with people time and time again because myself and the people I'm engaging with choose not to get bogged down in simply defending party or ideological phrases and we actually get to the substance and the meat of the issue. And then when we do that, we actually come to some productive conclusions. It's really, really, really intriguing. I had a debate with somebody the other day over over a, a slice of pizza about the tax brackets in this country and how I agreed with a progressive tax bracket system. And he was wary of a upper tax bracket that went as high as 70% on the wealthy. And I explained, well, it just keeps progressing. You know, why does the middle class have to deal with brackets every couple hundred grand they make, but the upper people making a couple extra million don't. And we came to like a kind of a middle ground where we, we saw each other. We had like a, a compromise and it was real easy to do. And imagine if people did that more instead of getting bogged down in the rhetoric. Anyway, Bernie was pushing the $735 million weapon sale. He wanted to put a put an end to that. And look, here's where here's the thing with Bernie, right? Bernie Sanders, I have a lot of disagreements with politically, right? From a from a substance standpoint. A lot of disagreements with politically. But if there's one thing you can say about Bernie, when I agree with him, I agree with him all the way. And when I disagree with him, I disagree with him all the way. And you know why that is? It's because Bernie doesn't pull any punches. You know who Bernie is. He doesn't play the game. He doesn't toe the line. Bernie sets the standard that he wants to, whether I agree with it or not. So you got to give Bernie some props with that because he's been consistent and he knows You know, when Bernie introduced that resolution to stop the $735 million sale of guns, he knew it was going to fail. So why did he do it? Well, he did it to get the message out, right? And I think the message is well-received. It's what I was kind of talking about last week. The message was, if you want to put a stop to the conflict or you want to really look at who's suffering more casualties and who's more the aggressor here, and you want to do something about it, You, as the United States, have the power to put pressure on Israel. And if you didn't know it, take a look, public, take a look, newspapers, take a look, media, at this, this $735 million worth of arms that we're sending Israel. It shines a spotlight on the crux of the issue and where our power lies. And it's well received. You got to give Bernie that. And it probably had somewhat of a train reaction. I'm not saying Biden did this because Bernie drew attention to the weapons deal. But I think Biden, he has a domestic agenda. He knows what's going on over there is wrong. And he knows Bernie and these progressives are shining a light on the military industrial angle to it. And he had to act. So then he called Netanyahu. He put his foot down a little bit. We'll see where it goes from there. But it was an interesting thing to look at. Now, speaking of the the Congress and their bipartisan versus partisan bickering, et cetera, et cetera. The House has now, more news this week, the House has now introduced, they've approved or passed legislation or whatever you want to call it. They've created a House commission to investigate the events of January 6th, the insurrection. This is the Democrat-controlled House. And... (laughs) I promise I'm getting to the central point that I promised you I was getting to, and this all ties into it. Forgive me. 
I'm no fan of Trump. It's well documented that I totally, you know, I blame him for the ins- for the insurrection. I've gone over it over and over again. I can't go over it anymore. But we had the impeachment. They impeached them. They presented the case. It was a great case. They presented it well. They lost because of a bunch of partisan hacks. Couldn't, again, transcend the Republican Party and just condemn the guy for what he did. But do we need to now have a commission to investigate it again? They already investigated it. They already investigated it. We saw the investigation. They, they played it out on national TV. Why are we creating a commission? to? This is where these parties just fail the American people because they can't get over it. The guy, Trump, you want to win the midterm election? You want to beat, you want to win in 2024? You want to stay in power? You want to accomplish the agenda you say you believe in so adamantly? Then get some legislative victories. Get some things done for the people. And I know they did the stimulus, but now we're working on infrastructure and more on that in a second. Get some things done for the people if you want to win elections. What good is it going to do to just keep talking about Trump? He's been gone. He's off social media. He's got basically no platform. He's got basically no way to communicate with people. Except for holding his little court down in Mar-a-Lago where all these minions go to see him. What are you bringing up a damn commission for? I mean, come on. It's just a waste of time. You know why? Because people eat it up. Because if you hate Trump or you love Trump or whatever it is... Then you continually just want to keep it up and just keep the mind up. You know what it does? It almost helps Trump because it keeps his name in the news. They should be setting up commissions on climate change. I'm probably sure they already have one. But on infrastructure packages, on inequality in housing. I mean, I know they have these things, but they should be spending any time to spend it on this. Spend it on those issues that they say they care about so much. Find solutions. Who cares about him? They're prosecuting the people. They had their chance to prosecute him. They should have convicted him. I, I, I think they should have, but they didn't. So now what are we going to do? We're just going to sit here and do commissions over and over again? I, I just don't understand it. It seems to me like a dog and pony party line show. That's what it seems like to me. It seems like a waste of time. Now, while they're doing this, while they're doing this, there's an infrastructure bill and there's an impasse with this bill. And I have said... I've said from the very, very, very beginning of Biden's tenure as president, I've said one of the main reasons I was excited about Biden and I think Biden could actually get something accomplished that would benefit us all was infrastructure. I, I, I just, I went into this already. I'll go into it again another day, but we need to make a once in a generation investment in infrastructure. And there's a battle going on right now. It's been drowned out a little bit the last week. And, you know, Biden and Harris were on this tear for a long time and I was applauding it. It was great. It was a very forceful push, a very forceful push to try to get this infrastructure package passed, to try to sell it to the American people because it would benefit so many large swaths of the population, Democrat or Republican, rural or urban, 
wealthy or middle class or in poverty, it would get so many, it would benefit so many, would, the whole generations of Americans would be benefited. It's been drowned out over the last week or so by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's been drowned out by these other things. But the fact is, while they were voting on this commission, there's this infrastructure thing pending. Now, Biden's trying to make it bipartisan, which I commend, and I understand why. I don't even know if they have the Democratic votes to pass it via reconciliation. We'll see. We'll see. But he's been trying to be bipartisan. Here's the interesting thing. He met with Republicans a couple weeks ago. He had presented his initial plan, which was the four billion, four trillion dollar plan. Republicans had given 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 a counter offer, which was substantially under one trillion. It was so however many billion dollars. They stuck much more with actual physical roads, bridges, and those things. They they completely cut out the human capital thing. But they also cut out a lot of the electric vehicles, electrifying the rail. All those things, some of the clean energy incentives. And see that, when you look at that, that's just more partisan BS, right? What about cleaner energy? What about putting people to work in the massive sense of revamping our infrastructure to make it more environmentally friendly? What about that screams we can't do it? What about a bit of a higher corporate tax rate to be fairer to the middle class. What about that screams unfair can't do. But anyway, they presented the initial counter offer. He said, no go. They went back and forth a little bit. He gave them until this past Tuesday to present another counter offer. And they were, they were talking. He's in good faith talking to them. And they were supposed to present another counter offer on infrastructure that was slightly higher. And he even said, maybe I'm open to not raising the corporate tax rate. Maybe I'm willing to simply enforce some loopholes that people have been exploiting within the tax code to get this done. But you know what? That Tuesday deadline passed and the Republicans didn't put anything forward. In fact, they said, well, he's still digesting our initial counteroffer. He can deal with that. Guys. If the Republicans want to come in and say, look, this is too much with the human element. You got to make that a separate bill. We don't want to deal with that. You know, we don't want to raise taxes too high. You know, and exactly. Good point. Good point, CLR. Good point. He made it so big that he can negotiate a deal. That's that's so true. He made it so big. That's what he, He's doing what, a, what negotiators do. And the Republicans did it too, right? That's how negotiations work, isn't it? You come in high, they come in low, then you start working, 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 you meet in the middle. That's just common sense. But for some reason, they don't want to come any higher. I mean, he, but he's got to come lower too. I know this is how it works. This is how it works. This is how it works. But we have this partisan bickering. Now, this is something I think both sides, if they have any common sense, should know, should know that we need to get done for the American people. This investment in our future, in jobs, in infrastructure, in technology, it always yields beneficial results over a long, long period of time. We need to get there. We need to take hold of the, the moment and we need to pass it. We can do it. So they can make commissions about January 6th. 
And Democrats could say that it's human infrastructure, too. But they know infrastructure is infrastructure. And Republicans could sit there and say, we don't want to spend a dime on electrifying vehicles or a dime on trains. They can they can do it. They can sit there in their corners and do their nonsense as much as they want. But the fact is, we need upgrades. We need to invest. We're ready. We're willing. Let's do it. Let's do it. And by the way, Biden's struggling with the border at the same time. The border, there's a border crisis. There's so many people coming in. It's not just because of Biden. It's because people think he's more lenient, whether he is or not. He's getting criticized from the left because he's holding people captive as they come across. And he's getting criticized from the right because there's a surge. We got to act on that, too. But that's another issue for another day. I should have a panel on it, maybe. We got to act on that, too. But there's issues we have to act on that partisan bickering is stopping us and preventing us from doing, which is just a shame. So to that end and on that subject, there was an article I read this week in Time magazine. And it was called basically What Divides Us? Interestingly, right, there's so much division. We're always talking over and over again in this country about, and I've talked tonight about, we got to transcend these fictional fabricated divides and just be human beings and just go to a place where we solve our problems, right? So, but when we talk about how divided the country is and we're a divided nation and society is so divisive now, what are we talking about? What is it that divides us? You might say race. You might say religion. You might say political party. You might say wealth. You might say rural versus urban, which we certainly saw in the last presidential election. The urban-rural divide is immense. But what is it? Well, certain researchers from George Mason University actually attempted to quantify and figure out what it was that predominantly divided us as people. And what they did, as reported in Time magazine, is during the October-November time span of last year, which was close to the election, where obviously tensions were riding high and things, which, by the way, since it was conducted over October-November, I'm thinking that might have something to do with the results, but we'll see. Essentially what they did was they got 3,500 Americans and they polled them. And first they shared, they got their information from each of the 3,500 people as to what political party they identified with and what their demographics were, right? What their race was, what their education level was, whether they were urban or suburban or rural, all these other things. And then they essentially gave them um, examples of other people that had various traits, right? Whether the people were Democrats, black, white, uh, Hispanic, Asian, um, old, young, all all of these things. And education level. And they attempted to see what people said they identified more with. So what traits that in other people they were most divided about and what traits they felt they had most in common. To try to see what it was that actually divided the American people the most. Well, interestingly, after conducting this study, they found that the number one divider of people in the United States 
the number one thing that they thought divided themselves from others was party, political party, political identification. That was the number one divider. But it goes deeper than that. Intriguingly, and I'm not surprised, intriguingly, the party divide. So people felt more divided by party and stronger about party affiliation on the left. People who identified as Democrats were quicker to identify with other Democrats, regardless of religion, race, or anything, and were quicker to dismiss Republicans, whether they had a lot of other things in common with them. On the other side, they're nothing to be commended for. Republicans were more likely, number one, to identify and, and divide by religion, number one. So they were way more likely to identify with other Christians and to not identify with anybody who wasn't a Christian. And number two, race. They were far more likely to identify with white people than any other race and were more likely not to identify non with non-white people. So you, you essentially have, and I don't think it's surprising to anybody, right? On the one side... You have Republicans who are primarily about religion and race. And on the other side, Democrats who are primarily about party. But that doesn't absolve Democrats, right? I'm not saying that either side is good here. I'm saying both sides have a big deficiency in my opinion. Because remember, we're always talking about the complexities of political parties anyway, right? They're these two, you only have two, right? So they're these huge umbrellas. So how can you how can you identify more with a party when the party encompasses all these different interests, environmentalists, you know, crime advocates, yada, 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 uh, people who are advocates for the poverty stricken. How can you say that party trumps everything else? And on the other side, you saying you have more in common with skin color. So you have more in common with some billionaire guy than you do with somebody who might live in your own city next to you. It's problematic. It's problematic to say the least. But I wasn't surprised by the Democrats putting party over everything. And I wasn't surprised by the Republicans putting race and religion over anything. What I find interesting, though, is that when you put party over all, you know, it reminds me almost and I'm not trying to just be with hit you with crazy rhetoric or be, you know, maybe it's a little hyperbolic. But there's a point. The way the left side of the spectrum is going, the way the Democratic side of the spectrum is going, I'm not surprised they put party overall. It sounds almost like those socialist regimes in other countries. It sounds like communist regimes, right, where it's party overall. They can bend all the rules. They can constantly change the platform. <laughs> they can constantly change anything as long as the party line, the party ideology is intact. And it's almost oppressive ideologically on the left because if you don't, swear complete allegiance to the party and whatever theory and whatever uh, issue the party has deemed the most important, if you don't swear allegiance to that, you're cast out, you're canceled, you're shunned. On the other side, it's just as insidious because it's about race and religion. So it's like at root prejudice. It's not ideological, but on one side, you have ideological oppression. On the other side, you have physical and racial oppression, right? And both don't offer much of a good alternative to people who want a better world, do they? It's it's scary. And I want to delve into two 
kind of interesting examples of how the racial political divide has manifested itself into these artificial, painted us into these artificial corners that I'm constantly railing against. And while I'm calling for people to transcend that and just be better humans to find common solutions, I'm going to explain through these examples how we've been put at a disadvantage to do what I'm asking for because of this racial party divide that we've become and devolved into as a society and as a democracy. The first one is there's this website and and it's constantly I see it popping up on Instagram and I see it popping up on Facebook and just everywhere. It's called Push Black. Push Black is the name of it. It's I've seen it pop up a lot recently, right? And some of the things it posts, it seems like it's empowerment for African-American people. It seems like it's historical facts. It seems like it's mobilizing people and it's asking for donations over and over and over again. But I started to notice, whether it was on Instagram or it was on Facebook, that there was a lot of, you know, hyperbole. There was a lot of misinformation, a lot of stuff. It, it looked like almost exclusively this page, this organization was almost exclusively pushing negative things, negative news, negative history, misreported, misinformed negative history, just to get people angry, just to make people feel a certain way, just to divide people. And I was like, what is this? And every time they said like going live or something or showed somebody who was like a spokesperson for this organization. It was always a woman or a group of women. So I was like, okay, maybe this is a grassroots organization of women who are just sharing history and they feel a certain way. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you feel a certain way or whatever, that's your business. You can do what you want. But the more I looked into this organization, I found out that the founder of it was actually somebody named Daryl Scott, was a male, but his face was not on any of the pages. He never spoke. He was never... I found out that he belongs to all of these left-leaning, like vehemently leftist organizations. And his face is rarely on any of the promotional material or anything like that. And he pitches this site as something that just shares history. But in reality, he only had a few videos on YouTube. One was sponsored by Harvard, only had like 200 views. One was on some other thing called Echoing Green. I guess it's another organization. Both based out of... Um, both based out of Washington, D.C. And I traced it all the way back. There's a guy named Jeff Skoll. He's a billionaire Canadian, and he apparently bankrolls a lot of left-leaning things, films, organizations, all kinds of things. And he put a lot of money into this guy, Daryl Scott, who founded this Push Black thing, whatever. Long story short, a lot of the stuff they posted seems to come back to general themes, which is like, abolishing law enforcement, the criminal justice system, things like that. Even when somebody's successfully prosecuted, it doesn't really mean anything. It's all just a scam to just, you know, manipulate you, blah, 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 blah. A lot of really, really crazy stuff. Almost conspiracy theory level stuff. And I'm sure that Skull and I'm sure that Daryl Scott mean well. I'm sure they're trying to just mobilize people. And they realize, because in one of his speeches, he talks about how he uses this platform to mobilize people to vote. But he's not talking a whole heck of a lot about voting in these things. He's just talking about societal race-based reasons to be, you know, frustrated or annoyed. 
And he knows it mobilizes people, which is interesting because the central theme of this page is anti-law enforcement, all about changing criminal justice. Talk before about how a lot of that doesn't necessarily correspond 100% of the time with the interests of a given ethnicity or a given racial group. That's just a theory on the left about taking down the criminal justice system and it's an arm of the bourgeois and it needs to be torn down and you can't be part of law enforcement and also be a good person. You can't be a member of law enforcement and also share any of my interests. You can't have anything in common with me in terms of political interest or community interest if you're in law enforcement. And they, I talked recently about how they kind of co-opted race in order to push the leftist narrative as if if you're on a given racial side you have to subscribe to a given partisan ideology otherwise you're not being true to your ethnicity your identity your race etc and the republican party obviously has done a great job of already doing that because we saw in that george mason study that they already identify primarily and mainly with race and religion And now the left is using race and religion, mostly race, to push their agenda. But what does that do to the commonality of us as people if we are constantly fed and now through more insidious means by way of social media and marketing on social media and dark money financing marketing on social media on both sides? And we saw that with 2016, and it certainly helped Trump win the election then. This money that we don't know where it's coming from, a lot of times it comes from international actors. It's funneled in to our algorithms, which intimately know us as people. It's funneled into a way to things that make us tick as people and what we identify with. And then it drives us to go a certain way politically instead of finding common interests with each other that we share and have in common and tackling problems together, it paints us into these partisan corners. Well, another interesting example this week was, if you haven't been following the local news in New York City, the LGBTQ Pride Parade. The Pride Parade this week came out and said, there are no police allowed in the parade. If you are an LGBTQ member of law enforcement in any capacity, you are not allowed to march in the parade. Even if you have this struggle in common with me at our core, LGBTQ, we've been fighting for rights and recognition, whether within the police department, whether within the school system, whether within our banking job in just general society, we have been fighting for equality, recognition, the right to come out and be respected, the right not to be discriminated against in our employment. We have that common, common, deep, deep, deep commonality, but you will not march with me because you are a member of law enforcement. And an individual named Ravi Satkami, who's a police officer in the NYPD, came out and wrote an op-ed, I believe it was in the Post, about why that was disheartening and crushing to him as a homosexual police officer who fought so hard to be able to come out and achieve equality within the department. This is an example of how these partisan identity-based ideologies or agendas can take such insidious root in our psyche, our collective societal psyche, 
that they prevent us from uniting with each other over common issues and common solutions. These political parties and these political ideologies have permeated and, and burrowed themselves so deeply into our intimate identities that we must put party and platform above all else in order to serve our identities, even if it doesn't even serve our identities and makes us reject individuals who identify with us on the most basic, substantial, deepest level. The left has become such an ideologically purist party that they are so single-minded theoretically and academically with regard to law enforcement and the criminal justice system that they are banning gay police officers from marching in the Pride March. And they don't want police anywhere near them either. They said, not even to protect them. This is where we're going. And it's scary to me. So if we are primarily divided on one side by party affiliation, which is now being co-opted with identity, and on the other side, party is so deeply tied to race and religion that it's almost inseparable. It's just the Republican Party is just a party for white Christians. I know there's other people in that party, but they, they're marketing themselves that way. They don't even want to reach out. And on the left, you're saying, yeah, we're all for rights for LGBTQ, but not if you're law enforcement. No, we don't get down with law enforcement any way, shape, or form. There's no room there, do you see? There's no room for compromise. There's no room for solutions. If I can't reach out and say, you know what? I'm a police officer, but I'm also LGBTQ. What can police officers do to, to better further the LGBTQ agenda? We need to work together on this, right? And if entrepreneurs don't feel accessible to the Republican Party or to conservative economics because it's shut out because it's such a white Christian party, how are we ever going to circumvent these partisan identifiers? How are we ever going to circumvent these marketing gimmicks in our social media? How are we ever going to circumvent these things and come together to tackle problems? How are we going to pass infrastructure in a common sense way? How are we going to have elections that aren't just based on identity and nonsense and party anymore, but actually based on two candidates with two complex and competing visions for how to govern? How are we going to look at situations, problems, leaders, and things of that nature and say, that's a problem. We share the diagnosis of that problem. We share a common goal on how to fix it. We can both benefit from this proposed solution. How do we go from there to there when this is the current state of things? It's disheartening. And I usually try to be optimistic. And look, life is good. I'm optimistic in general. But as far as societally, we've really... Really, really, really got to break out of this. We've got to stop letting these marketers with their social media gimmicks and the veneers and facades that they put before us to sell us on things and the utilization of marketing algorithms that have been around to market us, you know, commodities for decades that they're now using to market political ideology to us. These things are what foreign countries use to divide us too. This is what they want. They want us to fight over arbitrary things so that we don't actually get to our commonality with each other to tackle things and find solutions. 
They want that. And when I say they, I'm not talking about some shadow mythological thing far somewhere else. I'm talking about foreign powers. I'm talking about people that are only in office to get in office again, instead of being in office to find solutions and to actually govern. Those are the people that we should be number the most suspicious of. The most suspicious of. Yet we play right into their hands. So Democrats are now, went from the party where they were fighting for the rights of people to, no, no, it's all about party, it's ideology. I don't care what your identity is. I don't care that you're an LGBTQ person. You're a police officer. Therefore, the party says you're out. Where Republicans say, no, 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 we're not all about business and entrepreneurship and freedom. We're about whatever white Christians want. And why did Trump succeed? He wasn't a conservative in the true sense of the Republican word conservative. He wasn't. He was just doing whatever was in the best interest of white people and Christians. He wasn't even a Christian, really. Not in practice. But he was just doing whatever's in the interest of white people and Christians. Not whatever's Republican, idealistically, ideologically, whatever serves white people, whatever they want to hear. And the left is, well, we got you on board. We're going to get you on board. We're going to bait you with the identity. We're all about identity. We serve all these other identities. But once you get here, oh, yeah, you can't be a cop. You can't be this. You can't do this. You can't say that. You can't speak that way. You can't disagree with me. You can't have an opposing theory. You can't write an opposing book. You can't mumble anything. You couldn't have said something 10 years ago. Scary. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. How do we transcend these things? Well, we got to look at the issues. And one of the things I took from that Time Magazine piece was, at the end, they essentially said, in day-to-day life, right? So in that in that fabricated world that they took that survey in, right? Which is akin to the fabricated universe that we exist in in social media. In that fake universe... The internet, with our heads buried in our phones, with the news stories that the algorithms have fed us, with the posts that the algorithms have fed us, with the comment, excuse me, sections that we get bogged down defending our side that has been fed to us over the last week. In that world, we are divided primarily on the left by party, on the right by race, religion. We are divided primarily overall by party. But in the real world, they said, and this is true, in the real world, when you walk out your front door, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you participate in the community, it's not based on political party or race or any of that. It's the guy you work next to versus the manager, the manager and you guys versus the customer who was a jerk. You win the customer versus the guy who wouldn't give him a deal. It's your buddy in the bar versus the bar closing or the bartender. It's you and the bartender against the patron who's acting out of order. It's you and the individual who were in the car accident and the police officer writing their report. It's you reporting a crime and the police officer taking the notes. It's you on the jury and the person's accused wrongfully as far as you're concerned in acquitting. Or it's you on the jury and convicting, okay? Because the victim voiced something. And in that real world, not the fabricated world, Our actual commonality, our actual things in common, our actual shared interests come to fruition. We got to get our heads out of our phones and off of these algorithms and out of this fake notion that you need to identify with something first that assigned you a political party. And once you're assigned a political party, you must defend the ideological slant slant of that political party till the death. 
got to get out of that. That's something that's within that phone that's in your hand. You got to get out of that and get into, well, think about day to day. What do I really think about this issue? If I forget about the internet algorithm and the guy I'm arguing with right now that I don't even know, when I step away from that and look to my right and left in the real world, what do I really care about? Who do I really have in common with? Who do I really relate to? Who do I have a shared interest? You ride mass transit to work? Well, maybe you don't have so much in common with Republicans who are trying to dead improvements to our infrastructure. Maybe you got a lot more in common with the guy who wants to fix the bridge that makes you late every day, right? Well, you live in a place with crime issues. Maybe you have more in common with law enforcement than you thought, than with somebody who lives in an affluent suburb who's vehemently always against it. Well, who do you really have things in common with? Who do you not have things in common with? If we get our heads out from the phones and out from the algorithms and we unplug for a minute, and I don't mean you have to literally get away from technology, but I mean just conceptualize things differently. How do we transcend the boxes they've painted us into? This Israeli-Palestine conflict, I know it's complex, but I mean, how do you transcend it? Well, look, there's a piece of land that if they got it, and we gave them part of this city, and we said that's their state, then maybe we'd all just live in peace and we wouldn't be losing 232 people and 12 people and 65 children and two children. Maybe we wouldn't be losing all these people. All you got to do is give them some land. Land. Does it matter? Does it really matter? Does it really matter? Common sense, cooler heads must prevail. What do they have more in common with? Do the people in Israel have more in common with whatever government wing wants to keep fighting? Or the people who live right next to them in Jerusalem, don't they have a shared interest in being protected and having peace? They have more in common living next to each other in the area that's affected by the violence than they do with any outside geopolitical actors. We got to find what we have in common at root. We have got to find what we have in common at root and gravitate toward that because this division is just, it's crazy. You know, it's interesting. There was another article I read not too long ago. It's, it was in uh, the New Yorker and it was about this thing called tacos. I'm not talking about the tacos that we think about in North America, which by the way, are pretty much Tex-Mex. Some people know the true Mexican taco, but whatever. Long story, long story short, crazy, sounds off topic, but it's not. There's this phenomenon in France, phenomenon in France about tacos. And it's called tacos plural, even if it's singular. What it all it is, not a real taco like we think of. It's basically a sandwich made in like a tortilla with all kinds of stuff in it, like chicken fingers, mozzarella sticks. It's almost like a Rutgers fat sandwich. It's almost like a grease truck sandwich from Rutgers, basically, but it's made in like a flour tortilla. Anyway, it's so big in France. It's so huge in France. And shout outs to the listener from India. How you doing? It's so big in France that they have like franchises called old tacos, this tacos, that taco, all this stuff. Anyway, it's not a real taco like the way we think of it. But essentially, it started in these neighborhoods where these Algerian people and, and, and other people from the Middle East were working, immigrants to France. And they came up with this dish and they borrowed the term taco from Mexican immigrants in France because it was made in a tortilla shell. And it's now a hit. And interestingly, in this article, long story short, it basically got to the subject of like, you know, 
Mexican people in France were annoyed that the Algerian people in France appropriated the term taco. And then the French people were appropriating the Algerian food by opening the franchises and making their own tacos. And I realized like that whole notion of cultural bleeding, you know, cultures borrowing from each other and et cetera, that's just people. It's so interesting how many layers of borrowing and appropriation, et cetera, you could go through. It's just people interacting. And instead of saying, oh, he took that from me and then he took that from me, let's celebrate in everybody's shared innovation and the sharing of what's awesome. Food is great. Tacos are great. Sandwiches are great. Just enjoy that they came together to make some awesome food that everybody loves. And I understand I'm not some naive person, right? I understand the the legitimate criticisms regarding cultural appropriation. I understand that. That's like, you know, you you take somebody's actual music like they did in the 50s and 60s and you have Elvis sing it instead of the original African-American artist and then he makes all the money and they don't make a dime. That's not right. That's not what I'm talking about. But I mean, you know, people are saying, why not give credit? I mean, they're giving credit. It's not a taco, but they're calling it a taco. They're giving credit. They're like, yo, you guys use tortillas. We're going to call it that. So everybody always knows that you pretty much invented it. That's all. You give credit. You give credit where credit's due. But how far does it go? And... One more thing, I was watching this show, and it was, uh, oh, it was a movie, and, and it basically, it was, a, it was a pretty good movie, it was okay, it was a drama, but at the end, you basically find out th- this lady lost her family, and every movie we've seen for so long has been about when somebody loses their family, it's almost always like a car accident, right? Well, I, you know, the whole movie, I think it's the car accident, and she finally says what happens, you know, and it's so interesting because it's a 2021 film. And at the end, she goes to this person that she's been talking to. She finally reveals what happened to her family. And she says, she doesn't say it was a car accident. You know what she says? She says, oh, they were in a theater. And a random shooter killed the two of them. And you know what? That's not the least bit like gasp or the least bit crazy in 2021. That's like the same way in 1990 you would think of somebody dying in a car accident. There's somebody dying by a random shooter because that's the country we live in today. And you know why we live in that country? And you know why we deal with that problem? Why it's so commonplace? You know why? Because we have not been able to transcend over this nonsense caricature of a political divide and come to a solution on guns and we have not been able to circumvent that political uh political nonsense and come to a solution on the violent nature of our country and and people dying at the hands of violence anyway so we're suffering from these issues and at the end of the day you have to just ask yourself never mind what i've pledged allegiance to as far as party Never mind what my identity has dictated that I have to be allegiant to. Never mind what the party has said is our shared position on this particular issue or our shared phrase on this position. What do I think a good person would do? What solution would work for good humans? What result would people who have shared interests and empathy for one another want here? Never mind whatever side or team 
I'm supposedly rooting for things? What do I think as a good person? And what do my neighbors and community members think as good people? We've got to get to that place. And all the recent news shows us that we sometimes do it, but more often than not, we don't. And we've got to try to get there. We really do. And there's so many ways we can do it in our everyday lives. Now, going forward, I think next week, I think I'm going to have somebody on to talk about inflation because <laughs> we got some stuff going on, guys. The price of things is going up. I explained it a lot last week with regard to why, but we still need to be wary of inflation. Hopefully it evens out. There's a lot of financial mechanisms at play. I'm going to, I think, have Neil on and somebody, if anybody else is interested, have him on to talk about it. I haven't asked Neil yet. I think he'll probably be down. Try to explain the ins and outs of financial reasons for why we have to be scared, why we shouldn't be scared, blah, 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 blah. Um, I know my father requested we talk about qualified immunity and ending qualified immunity. There was just so much news this week, and it kind of got my head into this partisan circumventing thing. And as opposed to the other issues but we'll get to those i promise you we're gonna do this panel because i got these i got these seven spots just looking at me dead in the face where i could have seven different people at once on here so i want to do the panel and we're gonna get there and do that so it's coming now uh, anybody want to call in and talk about anything i talked about or you just want to call in in general just to talk uh the lines are open Feel free to use the app and call in. I have officially retired the podcast phone number. I don't think we need it anymore now that we have this app. Um, so anyway, feel free to call in if you want. But I did have a relaxing week off last week. I'm glad everybody still listened. They still got plenty of listens on it. So it looks like everybody tuned in, even though it wasn't live. And I appreciate that. Um, but going forward, I do want to get some more. I want to get back to getting guests on, you know, but sometimes it's hard because the, the news that week develops. And as the news is developing, it may or may not lend itself to a guest. But I'm going to get guests on again soon. And even just people who want to come on and just uh, talk about whatever the week's news was. But listen, if you want to come on, if you have an idea that you want to discuss or you think, hey, this current event just popped up and I know something about it and you want to participate on the show, and you want to come on and talk about it, just reach out to me. I'm always open to it. I love having guests. A lot of the listeners like when guests are on. So I like that too. And again, thank you to all the loyal listeners who are here every week, regardless of what's going on in the news. You always show up. You always listen. You always engage. Today was a quieter uh, day in the comments. Looks like CLR uh, and Hanin took most of the... Uh, the time you guys were in there commenting the most everybody else kind of cooling and listening well, you know what with the way tonight was and the subject matter and the way i was kind of structuring the show i could see why and i understand it so you can vibe me for a few more minutes you can call in i don't know is rick in here tonight i feel like rick's not in here tonight so hopefully everybody memorial day is what i'm gonna have one more show before memorial day and i'll tell you what so Memorial Day is coming. I'm going to do a couple little excerpts on some people maybe that aren't as noticed or recognized that fought for the country. I'm going to be posting things about them, and I'm going to be maybe talking about them on here. By the way, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to post. I got a result. on. I'm going to post that Time article on the division of the country. I took a little test. It's nothing like the actual scientific test they did. It's way more simplified and just kind of dumbed down. But it was interesting. By far, I felt said that I felt the most commonality with people based on education. 
education level was like almost half of my 100% between four things. And then I think it was party was like uh, 24% and race was 20%. And then uh, religion was like 11%. Just interesting. But by far it was education. But they, you know, they had like 10 different categories. It was much more in depth. That was just a little practice test to give you the idea of how George Mason ran the study. So it was just interesting. I'll post that article on the podcast page. The other thing, guys, you've been sharing it. You've been cool with that. I appreciate you guys sharing the podcast, kind of letting people know about what we do here. That Logic and Larry discussion page. Look, invite people into that Logic and Larry discussion page and... If you see something that you think is interesting, post it in there. If you want to just ruffle somebody's feathers, comment on, a, on an article that I post. I mean, that should be a really robust discussion page. And I hope we can kind of get that popping again. And by the way, another thing, when we moved to the app, we did lose some listeners that were regular Facebook listeners. Invite those people back. Make sure the people, if there's anybody you know of that was a regular listener that hasn't really been in, shoot them an invite. You know, let them know we're on the app now. Shoot them an invite and try to get them back involved because we want to try to keep everybody together and keep this thing up. So anyway, I appreciate everybody listening. I appreciate you lending me your ears on this beautiful Thursday night. I hope you all enjoy your weekends. I hope over the weekend you think about what we said on the podcast tonight. Let's hope that peace continues to conquer all throughout the world let's hope that we continue to make progress on goals that we all share let's hope we can continue to circumvent the nonsense and the noise and just do what good people would do and see what we have in common rather than what separates us and let's not do it on the basis if we're going to be separate let's separate on things that we actually genuinely substantively disagree on let's not do it on the basis of nonsense Thought I just had a call, but now it went away. Had a call, but it went away. You can call if you want, but. So let's continue to do that. Let's continue to do that. In the right ways. Anyway, guys, looks like that call disappeared. So I will speak with everybody next week. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Logic and Larry podcast. Can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Let's hope we see some good news in the headlines going forward. And we will be back at the same place in the same time. And you'll hear my voice and this smooth music next week. Shoot me any ideas for what you want me to talk about, by the way. Till then, guys, it's been a pleasure. And I'm signing off. Good night.